0: Take your Bibles and open to the Book of Exodus with me, Exodus twenty-five. In a moment, we'll read Exodus twenty-five verses ten through twenty-two. Then we will move over to thirty-seven one through nine in the same book of Exodus. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. I hope you're here this morning because you want to hear good news. from the living and abiding Word of God that lasts forever, that is eternal, that never fails. The Word that has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What an amazing transformation has taken place in our lives because of Christ. And what an amazing transformation is still taking place through his word at work in our hearts and lives today. With these thoughts in our mind, would you stand with me as I read Exodus 25, 10 through 22, and then we'll move over to chapter 37. Hear the word of the Lord. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it. And put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end, of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends." The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces, one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony... I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now chapter 37. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. He cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet. Two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat. He made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. With their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Father, bring to the right way those who would stray from the truth. So that we may all unanimously serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. But in my carelessness, I didn't see the sharp edge of the metal shelf. And as I was pulling an item off of the shelf, I slit my wrist. I stood for a moment in disbelief, wondering what I'd just done. As the blood began to ran down my arm, I quickly tried to close the laceration. I put pressure on the wound. The more pressure, the less blood. What was I going to do? I could fix it, I thought. And probably not in my right right mind, definitely not in my right mind. (laughs) I said to my wife, just take me to Walmart and let me get some tape and I can tape it up. She said, no, you need to go to the emergency room. And so I did. And through the normal waiting process until the doctor finally came in, And looking at the small slit on my wrist, she did something most unexpected. She stuck her thumb in it. And she said, a few more millimeters and there would have been a lot more blood. No need to use a stethoscope. I can get your pulse. I can get a clear feeling of your heartbeat right here. My heartbeat had never been so clear. Four stitches later, and with a wad of gauze wrapped around my wrist, I was sent home. The doctor had come to a clear understanding as she stood there with her thumb in my wrist. I was alive and well, and my heart was beating. There was no doubt. This place where the Lord would dwell among his people, this place where he would be worshipped, The tabernacle, which would become the focal point and the centerpiece of the nation of Israel, not only in their wilderness wanderings, but also eventually in the promised land, is the place that the Lord is describing for us here in Exodus. And where does He begin with His description? He begins with the very heart of the tabernacle. The heart is the most important part, the thing which around everything else revolves. Without the heart of the tabernacle, it is just an empty tent, a shell without any substance. What is it that is the heart of the tabernacle? It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's unfortunate that what most people know about the Ark of the Covenant, including many Christians, is only what they've discovered from Indiana Jones movies. But Yahweh gives us a better picture of the importance of the Ark of the Covenant more than Hollywood ever could. The Ark is the living heartbeat of the tabernacle. And it is Yahweh who takes our thumb and he puts it on the artery of this heart so we can feel its heartbeat. And it is a heartbeat that emanates from the heart, and brings us to the very heart of God himself. So what do we learn as Yahweh communicates to us through the heartbeat of the Ark of the Covenant? What is the heartbeat of the Ark of the Covenant? Well, we learn three ways that we discover the Ark's heartbeat. You can follow along in your outline if that's helpful this morning. Number one, the ark's heartbeat declares God's holiness cannot be touched. The ark's heartbeat declares God's holiness cannot be touched. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a box. What could be so special about a box How often might we even learn from little children as they open their present that they are more enamored with the box than they are with the actual toy? Maybe we should pay attention to this box. Maybe we should take some time to inspect its divine specialness. It's made of acacia wood, a wood that was plentiful on the Sinai Peninsula Its length and its width and its height are given in cubits. Now, we don't use that measurement much anymore. A cubit basically is the measurement from one's elbow to the tip of one's fingers. So, roughly 18 inches or so. So, we have a box that is... 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches tall. That's not a very big box. That's not a very big box, especially for such a prominent box that is going to play a significant role in Israel's history. But now they are told to take this box and they are to overlay it with gold all around. The most precious metal that they had was to cover the entire box with a gold molding that went around it we also find that this box is supposed to have feet so that this box never rests on the ground at each corner of the box is a solid gold ring and four poles of acacia wood were also made these likewise are covered with gold and these poles slide into those four rings, and this is how the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported, was to be carried. It was a mobile box, and it was a box that was not to be touched. The gold overlay, the ornate fashioning, were a reminder of God's holiness. Gold is a precious metal. It's still considered precious by us today. In fact, if we took All of the gold that has been mined in the whole entire world, it would only fill up about 3.25 Olympic sized swimming pools. That's all the gold in the world. And so this box is not an ordinary box, this box is a special box because it's speaking to us and telling us and relaying to us about who God is. This is a God that is holy. You can't approach this box. You can't just come in and pick up this box. You can't even touch this box. Just like the Israelites could not come to Mount Sinai and touch it because the Lord had descended upon it, so the ark, which was so associated with God's holiness, was so dangerous, it could not be touched. How dangerous was it? Touch it and die. How can I say such a thing? Because that's exactly what happened during David's reign as king. Look at 2 Samuel 6. If you have your Bibles, just flip over there. Uh, 2 Samuel 6. The first few verses. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll start in verse 5. <clears throat> I'll back up. Let's start in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had spoken out against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David had this desire to bring the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. But they did not do what God wanted. They did not transport it the way that God had told them to transport it. They were supposed to carry the ark with the poles. And specifically, it was supposed to be the priests who were to carry this ark on its poles. But now they put it on this cart pulled by oxen and Uzzah was there next to it and as the oxen stumbled he put out his hand to steady the ark perhaps to make sure that the ark wouldn't fall to the ground wouldn't fall off the cart and Uzzah touched what should not be touched wasn't Uzzah just trying to help I mean wasn't Uzzah doing a good thing Is it fair? Is it fair, God, for you to kill Uzzah on the spot after he touched your ark? He was just trying to to help. David had disobeyed God. And David had disregarded the holiness of God. And Uzzah paid with his life. A small side note, your sin affects other people. Your disregard for God's holiness can have an effect, a detrimental, even a destructive effect effect on other people's lives. God is so holy that his holy ark was not to be touched. And Uzzah despite his good intentions, was not even allowed to touch. And so as we look at the ark, this ark represents God's holiness and is not to be touched. How much, as we think about this event with Uzzah, how much or how often Do we put our own estimation or our own judgment or our own sense of what we believe to be right even over God's holiness? Would we ever look at 2 Samuel 6 and this event and we would say, this doesn't seem really fair, this doesn't seem just. God's holiness is always just. It always does what is right and true. It demands the most respect It cannot be diminished, it cannot be tainted, it cannot be defiled, it cannot come into contact with anything that is unclean or unworthy. In fact, this Ark of the Covenant is placed in the tabernacle in this room that's called the Holy of Holies. It represented the holiest place of all of the holy places that were in the whole entire world and in the whole entire universe. Why? Because that's where God was. That's because that's where his ark was. It reminds us that the people of God were separated from the holiness of God. How easily, too easily, it is for us to Disregard God's holiness in our lives. How untouchable is God's holiness? How elevated is God's holiness? How holy is God really? And do we take His holiness seriously? Number two. The ark's heartbeat connects God's throne to earth. The ark's heartbeat connects God's throne to earth. Back in Exodus 25, there's two paragraphs. The first paragraph is all about the box, and then what is put in the box at the end. The tablets, the testimony, the Ten Commandments. And the next paragraph, seven through or 17 through 22, are all about the lid of the box. What is it that goes on top of the box? And what goes on top of the box is spectacular. As if it couldn't get any more spectacular, it does. And so this lid that is designed to fit perfectly on top of the box possesses two hammered figures, hammered of pure gold, and these figures are called cherubim. These are two angelic beings placed, one at one end of the lid and one at the other end of the lid. These cherubim have wings, and their wings spread out from their backs, over their heads, to meet in the middle. It says that these cherubim are Positioned in such a way that their bodies are facing each other, but it also appears that their their faces are perhaps bowed down in prostration, face down toward the lid. These wings were to overshadow, it says, the mercy seat. These majestic beings here adorn the top of God's box. And they're telling us something about this box. What is this box? It would seem weird to us, but to the Israelites, they knew this pattern. And it was not uncommon among earthly kings. Earthly kings that would have a throne in that day would also have a footstool at the bottom of their throne. A footstool where they would place their feet. A footstool that would show their authority, their power, their might. Their greatness, a place where they would put their feet. And so we read things then in the Bible like this, Psalm 132, 7 through 8. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship where? At his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. There it is, the psalmist using those two things in parallel. What's he saying? He's saying, "We're going to worship where? At your footstool." And what is that? It is the ark of your might. Not only should we consider this box of footstool, but we should also see that the cherubim play a significant role in signaling that this in fact is the very throne of God. It is He who is enthroned upon the cherubim. And that's what we read even in 2 Samuel 6. But also Psalm 81. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. So what is the Ark of the Covenant? It's the place where the very throne of heaven meets earth. The Ark extends The heavenly throne, God's heavenly throne, where he is enthroned above everything, it extends that throne to earth. And with their wings outstretched, with their faces bowed down, the cherubim are signaling to us the majesty of this throne is so great that the angelic beings can't even gaze upon it they are bowed down in prostration as they even uphold this throne. It also serves as a witness. What's put inside this box that's covered with this lid? Well, the Ten Commandments, the two tablets. Here it's called the testimony. and These are to serve as a witness before the throne of glory. They are brought before the highest authority, the one who is the sovereign God. And so it's saying, the Lord is going to hold you accountable. His testimony is here before you. It's at the very foundation of his throne, the very footstool of his throne. The Lord's authority is coming over you to show you his love, to show you his grace, to show you his mercy, but to hold you accountable to what he says. You cannot live any way that you want to live. You cannot do anything that you want to do. This is God's authority. It's his throne, it's his footstool, and it's for his glory. And what do you get with the footstool of God upon the earth? you get Yahweh himself. It is the very presence of Yahweh that will be in the midst of his people. This is where it says Yahweh will meet with Moses where he will speak to Moses. This is where Moses will experience the Shekinah glory, the bright light of Yahweh that will shine upon him and it will shine upon him in such a strength that when he comes out, his face will be glowing and the people won't be able to bear it. He will have to wear a veil over his face. To be in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant is to be in the presence of God Himself. And where, where, where would the people of God rather be than around the throne of God? The throne that had the potential to instill fear and trembling in the people of God now becomes our desire. Where would you rather go than to the throne of God? And how fickle are we that sometimes we settle for something other than the throne of God and God himself? Why don't we desire the throne of God more? Why don't we love the throne of God Why don't we cherish the throne of God, not as a place of judgment, but as a place where God cares for us, as a place where we receive grace and mercy to help in our time of need. There's coming a day when people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather around the throne of God and will worship Him forever. And what do you see there? Not only do you see people, but you see everything on earth and under the earth and in the earth, worshiping God? And don't you also even see the angels there around the throne, worshiping God, to join into that worship? Is that our desire? That's what we have to look forward to in eternity, and we will never, ever tire of it we will never say "Ah, i've had enough of god's throne i want to do something else for a little while we'll never get bored of it that is where we will feel the most at home you want to feel at home god's throne is where you will know that god's throne is where you will experience that and in fact in revelation 22 we read about it Will, that's us believers, that's us Christians, us his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Number three the ark's heartbeat provides God's way to make atonement for sin. The ark's heartbeat provides God's way to make atonement for sin. We haven't spoken much yet about the name of the lid. It's been called the mercy seat. It's on the mercy seat where Moses would meet with Yahweh. And it's above the mercy seat where the glory of God would rest. This lid, translation is often called the mercy seat, literally is called the cover of atonement. And in our paragraph here, 17 through 22, the word mercy seat or the words that make up this phrase mercy seat or cover of atonement are used seven times. When Yahweh talks about the mercy seat, we cannot help but think of what happened once every year in the life of the Israelites. That day of atonement, when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, that he would take the blood of a bull and sprinkle it with his finger in front of the mercy seat seven times. And then he would take... A goat, kill the goat, bring the blood of the coat inside the veil, and he would do the same thing, sprinkling the blood of the goat on the mercy seat. And Leviticus 16.30 says this, For on this day you shall make atonement to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. What imagery is the Lord giving us here? of what it takes to cleanse the people of God from their sin, it took first a substitute, didn't it? It took a bull, a goat, killed in the place of the people. It was not their own blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. It was the blood of bulls and goats. And so a substitute is needed to make an atonement. What good is atonement What good is it to be at peace with God? What good is it to be reconciled to God if you are dead? You cannot make the acceptable sacrifice even of yourself. We cannot offer ourselves as an acceptable sacrifice to God to save us because we are sinners A perfect sacrifice is needed. A better sacrifice is needed. A substitute is needed in our place. And so, year by year, the Israelites saw the high priest go in with the substitutionary blood to make atonement for the sin of the people. But it's another picture as well. Why the shedding of blood? It's a picture of propitiation propitiation is this picture of extinguishing or appeasing god's wrath it took a perfect blood to extinguish god's wrath and god's judgment that they rightly deserved because of their sin this is the way out from the wrath of god this is the solution to man's greatest problem. If sin is man's greatest problem, atonement is the solution. Literally, at one meant. You are at one with God. And what a thought that we are saved from God Himself. We who We're once separated from God because of our sin. We who were once enemies of God because of our sin. We who were rebels against God. How can we ever be brought back to God? How can we ever be at peace with God? How can we ever be united again to God? This is the story of the Bible. Sinners who can again be at one with God. Because of the work that he does to save sinners. Because of the work that he does to bring sinners to himself. Because of the work that he does to cleanse sinners from all of their sin. Because of the work that he does to extinguish his own wrath. God's mind is not like our mind. God's ways are not like our ways. God has a beautiful mind. And we only see a small glimpse of it in His Word. Yet, God gives us a glimpse of this beauty. And I fear sometimes we use our own human reason to try to figure it out and maybe sometimes even diminish the beauty of God's mind. (laughs) Because God takes this picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And I think if we were thinking about it on our own for a moment, What does this have to do with me? What about today? Is the Ark of the Covenant? There's no Ark here. There's no Holy of Holies that you're going to go into to find the Ark of the Covenant. Don't we desire God's holiness? Don't we still want His throne? Don't we still need atonement? What happened to this Ark of the Covenant? Maybe we should go on a search like Indiana Jones. We do find the Ark of the Covenant again. But we find it in a most unexpected place. Turn with me in your Bibles for a moment to John. John. John chapter 20, we We're going to read verses 11 through 18 in a moment, but first I want to read another verse from our text as we have that verse in our mind as we read John. So this is Exodus 25, 18 through 19. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. And now let's read John 20, verse 11. They do not know that where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned around to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, and Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Did you hear it? Now, maybe we could say, well, it's just a coincidence. But I don't believe there are any coincidences with God. And if God has a beautiful mind, and if God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts, then what is John doing by saying there are two angels sitting in the tomb, one on one end and one on the other end? And it fits a larger theme that John has already been talking about. It fits a theme where at the end of John 19... It says this, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. What is John doing? John is taking us back all the way to Genesis. And he's saying, you remember that there was a garden. There was a garden there with two people in it, Adam and Eve. And they fell and they sinned against God. And they were removed out of that garden. And what was placed there at the garden that kept people from going back to the tree of life? Cherubim and a flaming sword kept them out. John is giving us this picture. There once was a garden where the curse of death came out of it, but now there is another garden which flows out of it indestructible life. And where do you go to find this in the garden? The most unexpected place, you go to a tomb, a place of death. But what is there? No longer death, now resurrection life. And what is John doing? Well, I believe what John is doing is he's showing us the way back into the Holy of Holies. He's showing us the way back to the Ark of the Covenant. He's recreating it there in our midst. you know that John is the only gospel that doesn't talk about the veil of the temple being torn in two? Why? Because I think John is doing one better. He's saying, don't look at the veil. Let me bring you actually into the Holy of Holies right here. And what is there? One angel on one side and one angel on the other side. And what do you expect to see when you get there? Well, you expect the holiness of God, don't you? You expect... A holiness that no longer is untouchable but now can be touched and embraced and loved because someone's been made clean. You expect there to be God's throne there where you worship and where you rejoice. You expect there to be atonement made for sin, cleansing, substitute, propitiation, And what did Mary find? She found Jesus. What did she think she had found? She thought at first that she'd found just a gardener, just another son of Adam working in the garden there around the tomb. But unbeknownst to her, until he said her name, Mary, she then found the last Adam. This is no gardener like the first Adam who sinned and fell and was separated from God. This is the last Adam who brings you God because he is God, who gives you life because he is life, who gives you atonement because he is the substitute and the propitiation for our sins that brings us to God. Where we find in the tomb is we find Full access to God. We've been ushered into the Holy of Holies. We've been ushered in to the very throne of God that now we can draw near with full confidence because of Christ. We are those who stand forgiven and fully atoned for because Christ Jesus has made the sacrifice necessary for us. Are you ever trying to resuscitate your heart? You ever wake up in the morning and you feel lifeless? Not just because you haven't had any coffee, (laughs) but you feel like your heart is struggling to work. What's wrong with me? Why is my heart lifeless? Why don't I feel something? Can I get this heart going? And so you start to to push on your heart. Come on, heart. Let's get going today. Come to life, heart. You're there and you're pumping it. Heart, don't fail me now. Oh, it's not working. Give me the paddles. Okay, let's put that on. Clear anything. God, just give me a spark of life today. I need it. My heart doesn't feel like it's working. Why not? Why not? Because we haven't come into the tomb. How often are you there how well do you know it? Do you only know it one Sunday a year? Or do you know it every day? Come into the tomb. Come see where Jesus once laid. Come see the angels, one at his feet and one at his head where he used to lay. Come to the tomb where God's holiness and his throne and his atonement meet. Come to the one who is the risen Lord. Come see him and embrace him and take hold of him. Come and put your head upon his chest. Come and know and hear that his heart beats. Father, man thought that they could stop Christ's heart. And maybe they thought that they were successful for three days. But they could not stop it. Because his heart was more than merely a man's heart. His heart was the heart of the eternal God. A heart that can never be stopped. A heart that can never be quenched. A heart that can never be killed. Oh Father, forgive us for when our hearts are cold and lifeless. Forgive us for when we haven't been in the tomb. Father, come to us again in your holiness. Come to get us again and give us the desire to be around your throne. Come to us again, and refresh us, and renew us in the atonement. All of these meet, all of these find fulfillment in our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is nowhere else to look. There is no one else to come to. There is no holy of holies now to enter in here. There is no Ark of the Covenant because we have something far better We have a Savior. And we have a Lord. Father, if there is someone here today who does not know Jesus Christ, may they put their faith and trust in Him today. May they believe He died on the cross as a substitute for their sins to pay the price and the penalty to receive the wrath of God they deserved. And may they confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. May you so save them and rescue them and redeem them and may they finally know peace with God. Father, for those who are your children, let us today know that Christ's heart beats. Let us hear it once again And let his life, the indestructible life that he's given to us, be lived out by us with complete devotion and commitment, and ultimately for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.